all right, at this time, I want to invite those who remain to turn in their copy of God's Word to the book of Joel as we consider these five verses. This is a very special passage. It's instrumental for our thinking, and it's helpful for understanding the times. And so, we read from the prophet Joel, chapter 2, verses 28 to 32, the following. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said. And among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. Brothers and sisters, this is God's word to us. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for this word. We thank you for this great and glorious promise. We ask, O God, that we would give attention to your word and that we would indeed rejoice in it for the sake of Christ, who indeed is the surety which assures this word. We give thanks. Amen. Okay, brothers and sisters. So if you've been following along in our study of Joel, you know that it began with a recollection of a recent disaster. A crisis had occurred, a a locust swarm had taken place that had left the country in shambles. They were devastated economically, culturally, and even religiously. And it's that religious aspect that we fail sometimes to really grasp the gravity of because we, we are creatures of our time, and so we transpose beliefs and realities back into the Old Testament period. But when it gives call to lament and mourn because the, the fellowship offerings were cut off, it really is because that meant fellowship with God was cut off. It wasn't an illusion. Without the sacrifice... The fellowship was not maintained. So it really was a call to lament and mourn and wonder. Now, that reality is what is at the heart of this passage about what's going to be overturned permanently in the future. So this is a special passage. As we have seen in the book of Joel, as we understand and interpret prophetic literature, We have to keep in mind the use of type and shadow. We talked about how Moses was utterly unique 
in that God's word ascribes that to Moses and Moses alone did God speak frankly. Face to face, like a man speaks to his friend. Everyone else gets riddles and visions. And those riddles and visions are what we see here. And so there's this prophetic telescoping where it can be hard to distinguish the geographical or chronological distance between points. And sometimes things seem really near when in fact they're very far. And in fact, the bigger deal may be the thing up close, but it's hard to tell sometimes. And so what we saw in chapter 1 was his recollection of a historical event that had just taken place. And that gave him pause to consider how all of life's sufferings are but symptoms of the wrath of God against sin. And so that catastrophe, that day of the Lord, was itself a picture of a coming judgment, a coming day of the Lord, which he described in the first several verses of chapter 2. And he used the language and imagery of this locust army to depict and describe the Lord's army in whatever shape it may take as the coming judgment of God for sin. And so he calls us to repent and lament and mourn and rend our hearts, not our clothing. And we saw in the verses immediately preceding today's passage that the Lord then telescoping back to the chapter 1 promises restoration. That even though the locusts have taken everything, he hears his people's cry. He is not unmoved by the suffering of his people. And so he promises to bring back wholeness, to give back the years taken by the locusts. But then we come to this passage, which seems to be a passage which has in reference point a judgment as well. Indeed, 30, verses 30, 31, and 32 make reference to this dreadful day of the Lord that's coming with the sky being darkened and turned to blood. And it makes reference to some escaping who, who managed to survive. And so what we see is the eschatological reference point here is once again looking at that army that we see depicted in the first part of chapter 2. So there's a great day of judgment coming, a great day of the Lord that is yet to occur, but there's going to be those who escape. Now, in the meantime, we have this great promise about the Spirit being poured out on all flesh. And even here, yet again, we see the prophetic telescoping in effect, where in this passage, when Joel uttered these words to his people, they probably assumed it was limited in scope to the house of Israel. Because it's the spirit will be poured out on all flesh. They did not assume that meant every organism on the planet. In fact, it, no one thinks that it means all organisms on the planet. It doesn't mean all people without exception. They didn't even think it meant all people without distinction. They thought it meant all people in Israel. That's why it says your sons, your daughters. 
etc. The your being the reference of Israel. But of course we know that this focus gets broadened over time. And we see that what they originally thought was limited in scope actually has the curtains open. They see that it's much bigger in the straight panoramic view of what the Lord is doing. Now, in this passage, the spirit is front and center. And what is presented as a great source of hope is that there's this day coming when the spirit would be poured out on all flesh. That's the hope that's presented forth here. And it's this great and wondrous thing. And so in order to understand what is so great and wondrous about the concept, it's important that for our first point, we consider the Holy Spirit up to that point. Or if, if, if we want to keep it maybe easier to understand, let's consider the first point being the Spirit in the Old Covenant. Okay? So we are introduced to the Spirit of God at the very beginning of the Bible. Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. And it says that the Spirit of God was hovering over the, over the surface or the face of the waters. And so we get the idea that it's like this, for lack of a better image, a brood hen hovering, hovering over the waters. But the idea is intimate involvement with creation. The Spirit is the agent of creation. The Father is the one who wills it. The Son is the architect, and the Spirit is the construction crew, so to speak. The Trinity is involved in the creation of the world. That's what we learn from the whole Word of God. But the Spirit is involved at the very beginning. Now, when it comes to the, the subtle work of the Holy Spirit in bringing about faith and repentance and ongoing faith and growth in people's lives, there's only little snapshot images here and there. Of course, we know that human beings are depraved since the fall. And for anyone at any time to have come to faith, it took an act of regeneration. So anyone who believes does so because of the Holy Spirit. And we see little glimpses where the Holy Spirit is understood to be the one who keeps my faith alive. But predominantly... The Holy Spirit's work and role in the Old Testament was to come upon, to fill, to, to be poured out on particular people for a particular task or office. And this empowered them in some way to carry out God's purpose in the moment or for the duties of that office. So, for example, David is anointed to the office of being a king, and he that's more like authority rather than some sort of special ability. But like Samson is filled with the Holy Spirit, and he's able to accomplish like superhuman Herculean type feats. But not all the time. Just every time it talks about the Spirit of the Lord coming upon him. So the Spirit of the Lord in the Old Testament, is primarily seen as empowering and enabling and authorizing service as God's agent. And we see that this 
empowering, enabling, authorizing presence of the Spirit in the lives of particular people also meant that they had the experiential awareness of the presence of God. That they knew that they were God man or God woman according to the time. So the Spirit coming upon a person and anointing them or filling them was a sign of a fellowship and communion with the Lord. That's why David in Psalm 51 is, read it, he's not just afraid that the Lord will kick him out of being the king. He's afraid that if the Holy Spirit leaves, he won't have a relationship with God. The Spirit and his presence is an assuring assuring uh, presence that we know the Lord is with us, which is why Numbers 11 is so important for our understanding. Because in this passage, Numbers 11, we're shown episode after episode after episode where the people of God have refused to believe. They've refused to see the signs and know the Lord. And then we get to the part where the Lord tells Moses, set apart 70 men, 70 elders, and I will take a measure of the spirit that is on you and give it to them, and they will help you carry the burden. And the spirit comes on them, and they start fellowshipping, or they start prophesying. They are now endowed with the anointing, the authority, the gifts, whatever, to help Moses bear the burden. A little while later, Moses and Joshua are walking through the camp. And they see a couple elders who for some reason didn't show up with the others. I don't know, maybe they were, I, I don't know. They were, but they weren't with the others. They're in the camp, they're left behind. And they see them prophesying. And Joshua gets indignant. And he says, tell them to stop. And Moses corrects Joshua. You know, there's different kinds of rebuke. There's, a, there's the hard rebuke, knock it off, you know, and there's the soft rebuke. That's, those are the rebukes we have. And Moses softly rebukes him by saying, are you jealous for my sake? I wish that everyone was a prophet. That God would pour out his spirit on everyone in Israel. Why? In light of everything that's happened before, what that means is if the Spirit was on everybody, they would know and believe and trust the Lord. And so from that moment in, in, in Scripture, early on in Numbers, we see this trajectory where there's the promise of the work of the Spirit and His regenerating, life-giving work. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, they all depict the Holy Spirit's work as if it's bringing greenery and vegetation to deserts. That life will be where it's not. And so now, there's this great expectation following Jeremiah 31 of this coming new covenant where he's going to write his word on the people's hearts. And that all of them would know the Lord. That's 
but synonymous concepts with what Joel describes here. But here we see the cause of how the Word of God is written on people's hearts, that the Holy Spirit is poured out. So the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament assured people of God's presence and of fellowship with the Lord, and functionally it empowers them to serve Him. All right. Now, to my second point. This passage points to the Messianic age. Throughout the Old Testament, there's a bunch of passages like there's going to be a root of David, a branch that will come forth, and you know, out, out of from Bethlehem, Ephrathah, will come a righteous ruler. There's, there's all these little passages. So they had a, a messianic concept. And the Jews believed and believe now that this passage refers to the messianic age. Which is why in the Hebrew Bible, they have these five verses separated out from chapter 2. It's its own chapter. The book of Joel in the Hebrew Bible is four chapters. So these verses we're looking at today in the Hebrew Bible is chapter 3. And the thing we call chapter 3, they call chapter 4. So the Jews had a keen understanding that this refers to life in the Messianic age. The idea that the Messiah would come and everything would be rosy and peachy keen, it would be great. And Peter affirms this understanding. That is why he begins his sermon on Pentecost with this passage. You remember Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. The disciples go from heroes to heroes like that once the Holy Spirit comes. They're cowering in their room, afraid of the government, afraid that someone's going to cancel them, afraid, fearful, behind locked doors. They're free, but they're not. And then the Holy Spirit shows up. And it's like this great rushing wind and, and tongues of fire flame of fire lapping them. I will baptize you in the Holy Spirit and in fire. Purifying, cleansing effects of fire. And so they go out transformed. And if you look at the upper room where they are baptized in the Spirit, you see that there's women mentioned there too. It ain't just the twelve. And they go out, and people are gathered. There are Jews from all over the world gathered, and they start preaching. And everybody's hearing their own language. Truly, it would have been a wondrous thing to behold. And what do they do? You know the story. What do they accuse the disciples of being? Drunk. And Peter says, no, it was too early for drinking. That's what he says. It was too early for drinking. No. And then he starts in verse 16 with this. He quotes this passage. This is what was prophesied by the prophet Joel. And he begins, boom. And then when he concludes, he launches right into 
Jesus. So what is he saying there? This messianic age has now been inaugurated. And what you are seeing is evidence that the man Christ Jesus is now Lord and Savior. And in him, the promised age has begun. The new covenant has commenced. That's why there is salvation in no one else. Jesus is both Lord and Savior. Lord, he is ruler of the kings on earth. That's something his word does not shy away from. He is the Lord of lords, and he's Christ, the Messiah, your only hope. The only hope you have of avoiding the wrath of God is to flee to the Son. And it says that they were speaking in tongues. Look at Joel 2. Does it talk about speaking in tongues in foreign languages of any kind? No, it doesn't. What, what this means is that the dreaming of dreams and the visions and the prophesying, when Peter points to this passage as fulfilling the explanation of why they're speaking in foreign languages, it shows that it's being conceptual. It's being indicative. This in the Old Testament is what people thought of when they thought of somebody hearing from the Lord and, and reporting the word of God was to have dreams, to see visions. They couldn't have fathomed what Peter was talking about or what Peter was experiencing with the Holy Spirit giving utterance of new languages. But it's the same thing, Peter says. And this age has begun. Now this is a beautiful thing. What it means is that God's spirit has now been poured out on all who believe. There's no discrimination between class and kind. There's no distinctions between wise and foolish, rich, poor, male, female, educated, ignorant. There is no distinction. All those class divisions that formerly were leverage for one group of people in the household of God to think they were better, and all those divisions that led to other people feeling they were on the margins or periphery are done away with. There is a sense in which the kingdom of God is remarkably egalitarian. The promise that you are useful. The promise that God wants to fellowship with you. The promise that God wants to give you assurance that he loves you and you are his and he is wedded to you is for every person, not just a select few as in the old covenant. And all of us, young, old, rich, poor, educated, uneducated, whatever, we are all soldiers in the Lord's army. We are all ambassadors of his kingdom. Every single one of you has a divine vocation to be used for his glory and his purposes, which are redemptive. And above all, 
You must remember this passage is about giving hope that you are wed to the Lord. He does not, he will not, dare I say he cannot, abandon you. Jesus Christ is with you. Jesus Christ is with you. And the Spirit of the living God, the third person of the Trinity, who takes up residence in us, how? I don't know. But he takes up residence as a sign and a seal that we are the Lord's. He's a guarantor of the inheritance we have been promised. And he is the comforter. It blows my mind that we tend to think in this rationale. If Jesus loved me, he would want me to see him. He'd want to be here with me. When Jesus tells us in his word, it's better for us if he goes. Because if he goes, then the Holy Spirit comes. Do you not realize, brothers and sisters, sisters, that in the new covenant, this messianic age, your experience of comfort and assurance and grace is so much greater than those Israelites who passed through the walls of the Red Sea. They saw wonders that it meant nothing. And it profited them nothing. Your experience, post-ascension, post-Pentecost, that the Holy Spirit has now taken up residence in you, just reminds you in all things you are His. And so, this is the Messianic age as it's come upon us at last. But third, This speaks of the coming day of the Lord. Indeed, it speaks of in Joel 2, 30 through 32, of all these cataclysmic signs that will take place before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And, And some of this is prophetic metaphor. But Jesus himself gives reference to these cosmic upheavals before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And in a few weeks, we're going to start studying 2 Thessalonians. And Paul continually throughout his epistles makes reference to the coming day of the Lord. And what we need to see is that the Lord himself, in this promise, is promising to preserve a people through it. That we will be expected to suffer. But there are those who escape. There are those who manage to be saved. And it's those whom the Lord calls. So this coming passage, this coming judgment, we are told in this passage, will be dreadful. But those who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. We will go through it will be preserved in the midst of it. And notice in this passage that that ever-present tension between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. In 31, it's whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, emphasizing the human responsibility to do the calling. 
In verse 32, the survivors are those whom the Lord has called. There you see the divine sovereignty. Don't make enemies where the scripture has made friends. If you call on the name of the Lord, it's because the Lord has called on you and rejoice in that. And it's evident that he has indeed given his spirit to you. So, brothers and sisters, we are in the last days. You know why they're called the last days? Because having poured out his spirit, having accomplished his work, there is now no eschatological obstacle, block, check mark that needs to be met before the end comes. And so that's why we are to be zealous in good works, working hard at making disciples, trusting the Lord in all situations and circumstances, being faithful as emissaries. Because today is the day of repentance. Today is the day of salvation. But the day of judgment will come, as Jesus says, like a thief in the night. And that window of opportunity for the world will close like that. Let's not take up a position outside the walls and get a bowl of popcorn ready, thinking that we're going to enjoy the fireworks. Holy Spirit empowers us and compels us 